0: KRUI-FM. It is history overlooked. I am back for the second semester and I prepped this show over break during Kwanzaa. It's no longer Kwanzaa. However, I'm still going to talk about Kwanzaa, maybe retain this information for <laughs> 11 months from now and use it To your liking during the next Kwanzaa of 2019. However, I realized that I didn't really know much about Kwanzaa, the holiday, nor its origins, and none of my friends really did, none of my family, and I figured this would be a good thing to talk about on air. So today's story will be about Kwanzaa, Um, Which is kind of fitting, actually, because MLK Day is tomorrow. So I'm going to end today with some Black History Facts. Every day deserves Black History Facts, but today will be one of them. So, Kwanzaa. It all started with Ron Everett. And Ron Everett was born in 1941 in Maryland, and he was the 14th child of his family. In 1959, he moved to Los Angeles and began attending Los Angeles City College, where he became active in the Congress of Racial Equity and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and he eventually became the Los Angeles City College's first black student president. So, he keeps going through school, he receives his bachelor's, and then he goes to U- UCLA and receives his master's in political science, and where he also studied Swahili and Arabic. So, during this time when he's getting his bachelor's and he's getting his master's, he's becoming a lot more interested in African studies, in languages, such as Swahili and Arabic, and he takes a certain interest in specifically African studies, but he's also looking at it from a context of the United States. Oh, and um, Ron Everett, I guess I said that he was the first black state president, but he's black too. So he changes during this time his name to, I'm actually not certain how to pronounce his first name, Maulana, M-A-U-L-A-N-A, Karenga. And Karenga is Swahili for the Keeper of Tradition. And Maulana is a title that means master teacher. So he renamed himself the master teacher of the keeper of tradition. So he begins appearing at a series of black power conferences, which is during a time when racist violence is spread across the country. So this is in the the late, 50s, like very early 60s, when, as you know, MLK began uh, coming to the scene. He gave his MLK gave his speech in 1963, his "I Have a Dream" speech. So, if that helps you with about the time period of this, so Ron Everett slash Mr. Karenga is appearing at these Black Power conferences, and racist violence is spreading across the country and. Everett sees all of this, and he starts urging for the establishment of a separate political structure for African Americans. He also, at this time, develops the US organization, and Karenga describes US as meaning us black people. And the US organization focused on community revival programs and was influenced by the work of Malcolm X's Afro-American Unity program. Karanga also founded... Harambe, a newspaper that started as a newsletter for the Us organization, but eventually became the entire newspaper for the Los Angeles Black Congress. So all of this happens. Karenga is establishing all of these organizations. He's going to all of these cool conferences. He's becoming a, a big activist. And then the Watts riots in Los Angeles happen. And I certainly didn't know about the Watts riots until I watched the movie Kings with Halle Berry and Daniel Craig. I did know that they happened, but I really, I mean, I have a lot of history to catch up on. A lot has happened since the beginning of the world. But the Watts riots, I'm going to go on a little tangent here to describe them because they are a very, very important part of history, and I think specifically looking at like racial justice history so there are at least five really well done documentaries about the Watts riots and they all take place from different perspectives you can also look at a new movie called Kings that I just talked about it's on Netflix it came out in 2017 but it um, it's fictional but it takes place during the riots and it's You should be warned that it's not a very uplifting movie, but the Watts riots aren't really uplifting, so it kind of goes with the mood. So, Los Angeles, historically, had really racially restrictive covenants, and these covenants prevented Black and Mexican Americans from renting and buying property in certain areas. And these restrictions led to extremely racially segregated neighborhoods. As I'm sure you know, we've seen racially segregated neighborhoods all across the United States. They were really, really big in Des Moines, where I'm from. But in Los Angeles, it's also really, really prevalent, really significant. And in the 1940s, 95% of Los Angeles and Southern California housing was off-limits to both African Americans and Asians, 95%. Other real estate and housing discrimination led to black people being restricted to housing in the east side or the south side of Los Angeles in neighborhoods such as Watts and Compton. So, all of this, all of this housing discrimination, this segregation, is in addition to the extreme police discrimination and brutality by the white-dominated Los Angeles Police Department. So, Then, on August 11th, 1965, Marquette Fry, who's 21 years old, is pulled over for reckless driving. He's given a sobriety test and then placed under arrest. His brother was a passenger of Fry's car, so when this starts happening, he goes to get their mom. And his mom comes back, so it's the three of them and the police officers. And then, suddenly, there's... There's some hubbub. So someone shoves uh, the Fry's mom, and then Marquette Fry gets struck, and then the situation escalates. So now there are neighbors coming out. There's this, this conflict going on, and then they hear reports that Fry has been beaten. He was severely beaten, and that a pregnant woman who was involved in this scuffle that turned into a conflict was kicked by cops. So then this surfaces in the group and angry mobs begin to form. So Fry, Marquette Fry, his brother, and their mother are all arrested for fighting with the officers, but the crowd in the street, all these neighborhood members, remains and it grows. So police come to break up the scene several times, but they're met with rocks and concrete and eventually the entire neighborhood turns into a combat and riot zone. There are a lot more details about this that include a failed meeting the next day to try to calm the unrest, but ultimately the riots involved looting, arson, protests, violence, and lasted for six days. 34 people died. Slightly more than 1,000 were injured, and 3,438 people were arrested. So, those are the Watts riots, and they happen. Karenga, as you know, is from Los Angeles, or he at least began living there for a while, so he's very aware of this. And so, these riots, along with the other incidences of racist violence and brutality across the country, inspire Karenga to create a holiday of unity for his fellow African Americans. So, Karenga is specifically looking for ways to bring African Americans together as a community, and he wants it to be non-political and non-religious. So, since he has some background in African studies and traditions and languages, he turns to that, and he starts researching African first fruit, like harvest celebrations, which exist all across Southern Africa. And these harvest celebrations, these first fruit celebrations, form the basis of Kwanzaa, especially and specifically a Zulu festival called, and I'm going to butcher this, Umkosi Wakwashwama. So Kwanzaa technically is spelled, from its African origins, is spelled K-W-A-N-Z-A, but Karenga, as you'll learn, decided to use the number seven as symbolism. Seven is strewn throughout the entire holiday, and so he decides to unite all of these sevens together by adding an extra A to the word Kwanzaa to give it seven letters. So this is, as I said, complemented by the holiday's seven principles and seven symbols. So he officially creates Kwanzaa in 1966, which is in the height of the civil rights movement. As I said, MLK gave his speech, his I Have a Dream speech, in April of 1963, and he died in 68. So this isn't, so Karenga creates Kwanzaa in 66. And he decides that it's going to be celebrated for seven nights, starting on December 26th, so the day after Christmas, through January 1st. And its name, Kwanzaa, is derived from the Swahili phrase Matunda Ya Kwanzaa, meaning first fruits. So, Karenga first said that this was an alternative to Christmas. So, he believed that the Christian holiday itself was a white religion that should be shunned by black people. However, Kwanzaa began becoming more popular, it gets more adherence, and Karenga alters his position and ultimately states his official position in 1997, saying that Kwanzaa is an addition to Christmas and other religious holidays rather than an alternative. Nina Simone her glorious wonder so back to Kwanzaa so Kwanzaa's celebration itself includes songs and dances African drums storytelling poetry reading and a large traditional meal but like any holiday each family celebrates a little differently however the basics. There are seven nights of Kwanzaa. And on each night, the family gathers together and a child lights one of the candles on the Kanara. And the Kanara is a candle holder. And there are four candles on each side. And, or three candles on each side and one in the middle. And when they light the candle, they discuss one of the seven principles according to whichever night it is. And the seven principles are called Ngozo Saba, which means seven principles in Swahili, and are each values of African culture, which, quote, contributes to building and reinforcing community among African Americans, unquote, from history.com. And the set was created by Mr. Karenga. So, in order these seven principles. I think each of them is really, really interesting and really, really vital, and we could all draw something from these principles if you find something um, entertaining or intriguing about them. So I'm going to list them all and describe them all a little bit according to their official definitions as given by the official Kwanzaa website. So day one, The principle is unity, and the word for unity is umoja. And it says that unity is to strive to maintain utility in the family, community, nation, and race. They light this candle on the first night, which is the black candle in the middle of the kanara, which has, as I said, three red candles to the left, and three green candles to the right. So the candles themselves are called the Mishuma Saba, and the colors are purposely red, black, and green, which is from the flag that is created by Marcus Garvey, and they also are meant to represent African gods. So day two, self-determination. It is called... Kujichagulia, and it says that it is to define ourselves, name ourselves, create for ourselves, and speak for ourselves. Self-determination. Day three, collective work and responsibility. Ujima. To build and maintain our community together and make our brothers' and sisters' problems our problems and to solve them together. Day four, cooperative economics, Ujamaa. To build and maintain our own stores, shops, and other businesses and to profit from them together. Day five is purpose, Nia. To make our collective vocation the building and developing of our community in order to restore our people to their traditional greatness. Day six is creativity, Kumba. To do always as much as we can in the way we can in order to leave our community more beautiful and beneficial than we inherited it so this is day six and day six always falls on december 31st and it includes an african feast called karamu which is the, a really really big feast held during kwanzaa so day seven is imani and that means faith and it is to believe with all our heart in our people our parents our teachers our leaders and the righteousness and victory of our struggle so those are the seven principles that are talked about after the lighting of each candle one per day every day for seven days and there are also an additional seven symbols and these seven symbols represent values and concepts that are reflective of african culture so we have the crops the placemat. An ear of corn, the seven candles, the candle holder, the unity cup, and gifts. So Kwanzaa began being commercialized in the nineties, and that I don't mean commercialized like the way some other holidays have been truly, truly commercialized, but began being commercialized in that cars were being sold. So, like, Canaras were being sold. There's more notice in the actual product market, retail market. So, the first Hallmark card was sold in 1992, which some people say damages the holiday's values. And the first presidential declaration marking the holiday was given by President William Clinton, Bill Clinton, in 1997, which is 31 years after coringa first established it so in 2015 the national retail federation marketing survey found that approximately and these i found a lot of different statistics on these but this is the one that i i trusted the most it came from the national retail federation however the statistics do vary a little bit but according to this one in 2015 approximately 1.9 percent of people who were polled, planned to celebrate Kwanzaa, which is about 6 million people. This took place in the U.S. So 6 million people said that they would celebrate Kwanzaa of the people who were polled. But it is also celebrated across the world. But although it's unknown to what extent it is celebrated across the world, it is exel- it is celebrated across the world, which is kind of cool that Kwanzaa started this in 1966, and it's bolstered. It's completely international now. But Lee D. Baker says about 12 million total, is his estimate, of people who celebrate Kwanzaa. However, the African American Cultural Center claims 30 million, at least in 2009. And then a University of Minnesota professor says that about somewhere between 1% and 5% of African Americans celebrate it, in addition to some white institutions, which is interesting. So as I said... It has been become international. It spread to Canada. It's celebrated by black Canadians and has also gained popularity in France, Great Britain, Jamaica, and Brazil, where celebrations are held in several cities. and celebrations are held in the United States as well in several cities. I when I was researching this, I found celebrations in Philadelphia and Charlotte in Chicago and cities across the United States. And I even have a little clip of the 2018 celebration in San Francisco. Their local news KTVU staff, San Francisco, actually reported on it. In San Francisco, Kwanzaa began with a musical performance at City Hall. There are some great singers there. Kwanzaa continues until New Year's Day. It was created in 1966 by Professor Ron Karenga. It celebrates very important principles to the African and African-American culture. We celebrate unity, Umoja. Kwanzaa comes from the term Matunda Ya Kwanza, which means first fruit celebration. The Kwanzaa promotes very important principles that also include self-determination, economic self-reliance, and the importance of being generous. So that was a little clip from the San Francisco celebrations. But it is really cool that all of this started in 1966 from someone who just wanted to create unity among African-Americans. He felt that he, as an African-American, really really valued that and would see the value in more of his peers unifying as well. So 1966 to 2018, that's where it's come. There's a documentary about Kwanzaa called The Black Candle, and it's narrated by Maya Angelou a famous poet a black poet truly amazing so you can check out if you would like that documentary called the black candle but that's that's pretty much the story i have of kwanzaa for you um the weather real quick outside the sun has set it's not pitch black out yet but it's definitely going to be there soon it is nine degrees outside here in iowa city And it feels like negative two. So if you are going outside, I know I'm going to be outside in half an hour. I would suggest bundling up for sure. Negative two degrees is ridiculously cold. So that's the weather. And here is another song by Nina Simone. Okay, so Nina Simone. So, since I believe that there's not enough black history facts out there in the world, I'm going to read you some of the stories that I found on pbs.org. So, I did not compile these myself. It's from a list called 10 Little Known Black History Facts from PBS, and I'm going to read four or five of them. Some of them you might know, some of them I did know, but some of them you might not. So... Starting off with a story of the background of Rosa Parks. So, Rosa Parks, if you went to school, went to public school in the United States, or didn't even still, you might know who Rosa Parks is. She was the person who, during segregation in the deep south montgomery alabama decided to say no when she was sitting in the front of the bus and was bus and was requested by a white person to move to the back of the bus she said no and this launched an entire montgomery bus boycott however rosa was part of an organization and this organization specifically chose rosa to be the person who said no because she had pretty fair skin for for a black woman her skin was fairly fair um as opposed they specifically wanted this because there was there's something called colorism even like within the black community and outside of it where fairer skin People have the different. They kind of treat people differently depending on even the shades of their skin. So, they believed that having Rosa, a fair-skinned black woman, say no would be almost more tolerable or more it would have more change and more effect on the white community that they were trying to change than would a darker-skinned woman. So they chose Rosa Parks, fairer skin. She was an older woman. And she was a woman. So they had some reasons for choosing Rosa specifically. However, all of this happened nine months after the first person said no on a bus. That's documented at least. So March 2nd, 1955, nine months before Rosa Parks said no, 15-year-old Claudette Colvin was sitting on a bus, and she said no as well when the bus driver ordered her to get up. She said, quote, it felt like Sojourner Truth was on one side pushing me down and Harriet Tubman was on the other side of me pushing me down and I just couldn't get up. So that's Claudette Colvin. She's 15 years old, and she's inspired by Harriet Tubman and other black leaders that she's learning about in her segregated school And these conversations just led to discussions around current-day Jim Crow laws that they were all experiencing, and so she decided to just say no, with Sojourner Truth on one shoulder and Harriet Tubman on the other, and she was arrested. She was arrested and thrown in jail, and she became one of four women who challenged that segregation law in court. So... If Browder v. Gale, I'm quoting this now from the website, it says, if Browder v. Gale became the court case that successfully overturned bus segregation laws in both Montgomery and Alabama, why has Claudette's story been largely forgotten? So it was her case, she was one of four women, as I said, who took this segregation law to court, and she was part of Browder v. Gale. And this court case successfully overturned bus segregation laws in Montgomery specifically and Alabama in general. But the NAACP, as I stated earlier, just felt that Rosa Parks was better. She was older. She's not a teenager. She had fairer skin. She was part of the NAACP. She was a secretary. She was well-known. She was well-respected. And they believed that Parks was... would garner more support for the cause. So, that's the story of Claudette Colvin, who was a teenager inspired by these leaders she was learning about, and she decided to stand up and say no first. So, I keep name-dropping MLK, and it's probably because I'm excited about MLK Day tomorrow. Um, I personally always take time to well not always i've recently began taking time to do service on that day through the mlk day of service at the university of iowa so i'm very aware i guess that tomorrow's mlk day but in august 1963 i think i said earlier that he gave his speech in august but he was he gave his or i gave his he gave his speech in april he didn't he gave his speech in august and was shot in april so just to clarify that anyway He, on Wednesday, August 28th, 1963, MLK gave his arguably, but probably definitely, most famous speech, the I Have a Dream speech. However, on Tuesday, August 27th, MLK gave his speech to a smaller group of people in a little hotel room, the lobby of the Willard Hotel just to see if it was if it was a good speech. And that speech was not the I Have a Dream speech. That speech was more political and less historic, <laughs> as stated by Clarence B. Jones. And it did not have anything to do with dreams specifically. However, a singer named Mahalia Jackson was there, and she was really, really inspired by MLK talking about Later, about his dream. He was talking about this dream that he had to Mahalia Jackson and some other people, I imagine, but that wasn't part of the speech. So, Dr. King goes the next day to give his speech at the Lincoln Memorial. He is, it is the final speech of the March on Washington and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. standing there, he's giving his speech, and he can hear, reportedly, can hear Mahalia Jackson behind him saying, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. So people say that no one can really know whether he heard her. However, he pushes his notes aside, and he tells them about the dream. So this dream wasn't even part of the speech. He had an entirely different speech planned. And then Mahalia Jackson in the back corner says, tell him about the dream. And that's when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. transforms on the spot, just transforms his speech into something completely historic and wonderful. And that's when he says, I have a dream that my children will be judged not by, the co- not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. He says, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. So all of this, all of this infamous speech is just transformed because the day before he was talking about his dream with some friends. So, next story, story number three, inoculation. So I, I learned about this on Twitter, but it's also included in this, um, in this little article. And I was fascinated by it when I read it on Twitter, and I wrote it down in my notebook I have of story ideas for the show. And so it's in there, and I very, very well might look more into this to maybe make it an entire its own entire segment on a future show, just because I find it fascinating and important to talk about. But I'll give you some background on it now. So, inoculation was introduced to America by a slave. That's the headline that PBS has on this. But we'll step back a little bit. So, this person named Onesimus was is assumed to have been born in Africa in the late seventeenth century, but eventually lands in Boston. He was one of a thousand people of African descent living in a Massachusetts colony, which probably means one of a thousand slaves, but anyway, he was Onesimus the person was a gift to the Puritan church minister Cotton Mather from his congregation in seventeen oh six. So Onesimus told this person about the centuries-old tradition of inoculation that was practiced in Africa. So he explains that if you take material from an infected person and you put just a little bit of it in a healthy person, that healthy person won't get sick by the same disease because their body learns how to fight it. So you could take smallpox from an infected person and purposely put it in the healthy person, and it'll make them immune to smallpox. So this was considered extremely dangerous at the time, which makes sense because, I mean, I would have a hard time trusting it. It sounds kind of crazy, but you'd have to try it to see if it works. So cotton mather... Mrs. master owner convinced a doctor to experiment with this once a small ep- once a smallpox epidemic hit Boston in 1721 so then this doctor dr. Boylston inoculates 200 200- over 240 people so this process of inoculation was opposed politically and religiously and medically in the united states and abroad when the public reaction to the experiment put both cotton mather and dr boylston's lives in danger however records say that only two percent of patients who requested inoculation died compared to the 15 percent of people who were not inoculated who did contract smallpox so they go on and they actually use Onesimus's description of this traditional african practice to inoculate american soldiers during the revolutionary war so this entire practice of inoculation which is the basis of the way we introduce shots and vaccines to people now was introduced to the united states by this man named Onesimus. So, before I go on, just a couple little facts in a closing statement. I'm going to play my, a couple more little tidbits. These aren't going to be as long as stories, but a couple little more tidbits of little-known black history facts from PBS.org. So, in case you didn't know, I didn't know. The earliest recorded protest against slavery was by the Quakers in ni- in 1688. So the Quakers are also known as the Society of Friends, but they have a long history of abolition. And I think they originated in Pennsylvania, but they protested slavery in sixteen. 16- 88. They said that the slave trade was a grave injustice against their fellow man, and they used the golden rule to argue against such inhumane treatment. So the golden rule is treat others the way you wish to be treated, and they said that that is not treating others the way you wish to be treated, and that it's unjust. So they said that regardless of skin color, quote, we should do unto others as we have done unto ourselves and their protest they in it they stated pray what thing in the world can be done worse towards us than if men should rob or steal us away and sell us for slaves to strange countries separating husband from their wife and children so that was their protest in 1688 And they presented this protest against slavery and human trafficking at a monthly meeting at Dublin that was in Philadelphia. And so this meeting reviewed the protest, but sent it to the quarterly meeting and felt that it was too serious of an issue to be decided at their Philadelphia meeting. So the four friends continued their efforts. They presented their advocacy in their presentation at the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, but the Society of Friends, this Quaker, I don't know if it's technically called a religion, uh, officially denounced slavery 88 years later. However, 88 years later is still relatively early compared to when the rest of the United States denounced slavery because that was in step 88 years after 1688, 1776, which was when America was just getting started, literally. So, the Quakers Quakers were to something. So, a few more in there's a little place in time when Historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, kind of enveloped Jewish students and Jewish identity as well. And that is because in the 1930s, there were a lot of Jewish academics from Germany and Austria who were dismissed from their teaching positions because of Adolf Hitler and Nazism going on, eventual Holocaust. So... These people, these Jewish academics are being dismissed and they came to the United States searching for jobs. But in the 1930s, there was a depression in the United States and there was xenophobia, there was a rising anti-Semitism, and they still found it difficult to find work. However, they did find more than 50 positions in HBCUs in the segregated South. So HBCUs were originally established to educate freed slaves and teach them how to read and write. But by the time the Jewish professors arrived, the number of HBCUs in the South had grown to 78. So now there are 78 colleges slash universities in the South that are teaching black African American people more than just reading and writing. But this is mostly because... The South was segregated at this time. So now African-Americans are being persecuted. They've been persecuted, but now they have Jewish people who are being persecuted coming in as well, and they felt unified in this. So these Jewish professors in the black colleges found these HBCUs environment to be comfortable and accepting And they created special programs to provide opportunities to engage blacks and whites in meaningful conversation, which was often for the first time. However, eventually the interests of people who are Jewish and African-Americans kind of diverged a little bit. So this was just a shared experience for a little tiny part of the 1930s and early 40s. But it's a key part of the civil rights movement. So just a couple more Tiny little facts. One in four cowboys was black, despite the stories told in popular books and movies. So if you've only ever seen people who are white portrayed as cowboys, remember, one in four cowboys were black. Esther Jones, who is a black jazz singer in Harlem, was actually the inspiration the real she is the real Betty Boop so if you look up Betty Boop you'll see what she looks like you'll see her cartoon and just no it's actually completely modeled after and inspired by Esther Jones a black jazz singer in Harlem so those are all of my little facts I want to close today with a James Baldwin quote to get you ready for MLK Day tomorrow, perhaps thinking about all of this history that is overlooked often by our education system and by us in general as both Americans and just people in the broader world. So, in closing, a quote from James Baldwin, an author, a black author. He says, for history is not merely something to be read, and it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the facts that we carry within us, are consciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. It could scarcely be otherwise, since it is to history that we owe our frames of reference, our identities, and our aspirations. So, James Baldwin reminding you that history matters, not just looking into the past, but as who we currently define ourselves as and what we can look forward to in the future. So, happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Hope you have a good weekend stay warm because it's cold so enjoy your snow day tomorrow I'll see you next week on history overlooked <laughs> part by the, Theater. the highlights the talents of local performers artists ensembles and also hosts regional national and international touring performances the anglert is located at 221 East Washington Street for more information call 319 six eight eight 2653 or visit www.ingler.org